And we're going to start a series this morning on worship, of all things. Hopefully it will be a series that's not going to tell you that our worship is better than somebody else's worship, or we major on style of worship, or whether we should have pipe organs or guitars or all the things that have separated Christians forever. You know, the, the Christians, because they were considered demonic, and so the church didn't know what pipe organs, that whether they should ever be in. And so when we talk about worship, many times we start cringing a little bit saying, uh-oh, what are we going to hear now? But rather, I hope that what you hear it throughout this series that's beginning is that when it's all said and done, what worship truly is, is simply completing you, taking us back to our creation. And remember, on the first day, God created light, and on the fifth day, he created birds, and, and the sixth day, he created you and I. But nothing in creation was complete until the seventh day, when all that God had made came together with the maker, and they worshiped, they rested. Creation was incomplete until we got back connected to this man, this God, this woman, this spirit, this light, this truth, all of the imagery that you see in scripture about trying to define who this undefinable is until we got connected and became one again. Worship completes us. Worship is that which makes us what we are truly designed and made to be. When my grandson was four years old, he's 21 now, so you know the story's a few years old, uh, my nephew came with his wife who was a very uh, dedicated Jehovah's Witness. And she um, had raised two boys and they went to church every Sunday and they were immersed in the Jehovah's Witness uh, picture of the world. And so the very first thing that this cousin came when he came to our house was to go up to Gavin, the four-year-old, and he was about seven, and he said, do you worship Jehovah? Well, Gavin had no idea who Jehovah was. And so he looked around quizzically, and my wife said to him, yes, uh, Gavin, you can tell him that you worship Jehovah. And once that hurdle was settled in, then David and Gavin could play together. Worship has taken on so many connotations and, and, and is such a separating uh, dynamic in our world today that I hope that we can ratchet back and open ourselves up to the possibility that worship is not anything that we even imagine. What we just did was one microsecond of time of worship in the bigger scope of what God pictures us to be and to do as worshipers. Worship is so often in our culture defined as style rather than heart. It's amazing how many people find it so difficult to move from our heads to our hearts. And we think that what church should be and what worship needs to be is just another lecture so we can get a little bit more information. We walk down the road and put it in our notes and go home and think that somehow we have connected ourselves to God by learning something. But what it matters in worship is not how we choose to express it, but what matters in worship is our heart. Now, to be honest with you, I would have a real hard time worshiping in a rap context. I, some of my boys like Christian rap, okay? I find that pretty difficult for somebody of the Beach Boy era 
to enjoy coming into the presence of God in rap. And yet I can go into that environment and worship if I look for where God is in that. I can look at their heart and what they are trying to convey, and their heart and my heart unites together into something that we would call worship. A couple decades ago, I went down and spent a week in Oaxaca, Mexico, in the middle of uh, the uh, Indian uh, native Mexican community down there. And there's this beautiful, ornate Catholic church in the middle of town. Everything overlaid with gold. I mean, it was, it was stunningly gorgeous. The windows, the, the carvings, the, the stained glass, all of the things that, that went into that community over the centuries, pouring their life resources into this church. And I walked into this church and I noticed that there were all these stages of the cross, now, if you haven't been raised Catholic, stages of the cross may be a new term for you, but if you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, that's all that was, was going through the, the stages of the cross. And I took an hour or two, and I, and I went from stage one all the way through to the ascension and the celebration of God going into heaven through the resurrection, and I entered into imagining what it was like to be there that day that week, and to see all of those dynamics that were unfolding in the life of Christ, and I worshiped. Some people might have a hard time thinking that a Protestant pastor can actually worship in a Catholic context, but it's our hearts that unite us. It is not the style. A friend of mine went a few years ago to a Buddhist monastery in the capital city of Borneo, Sarawak by, by country, and he spent uh, several days there just immersing himself into the quietness of the, of the Buddhist monastery. And as he, as he was there, he became acquainted with the, the head priest, and so he, he asked him about the roots of Buddhism, and, and so um, he found out that the, the roots of Buddhism has the Trinity in it, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and, 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 as they, and as he took him to the back of that monastery and, and he showed him where the priests would come out to, to the worshipers, he saw these carvings, and as he opened the door, those three merged into one. And he, way back in time, way before Confucius got Buddhism into its head rather than its heart, he found out that there was worship of the Trinity God, the Trinitarian God, and... Um, we can unite that way because it's about our heart. It's not about the style or the place or the setting. What unites us in worship is not our preferences. What unites us is God's love toward us. His passion for each of us, his determination to go to any length to save us so that he can connect with us, so that he, can, he and us can be best friends. Christian worship is unlike any other worship in, the, in this one sense. It is rooted in what Jesus has already done and what he is doing in your life. It is Jesus-focused. Worship is not based upon my desire because my desire can get really screwed up. And I can get diverted and I can be desiring a lot of things. So worship is not based upon whether I feel like it or not but rather it's based upon my response 
that includes my passion, my emotion, my intelligence, and my physical being. Jesus said all of this much better when he simply said in Matthew 22, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Just immerse yourself in that love for him, and that's what worship truly is. For those of you who got out of bed last night and got to bed late last night, or those of you that are worried about how you're going to shape up at your first class tomorrow morning and how you're going to get from one classroom to the next in 10 minutes or whatever it is before the bell rings, I want to give you the definition of what we're going to say this morning. Then you can go back to sleep if you're tired. This is what I want to say this morning. This is what I think Spirit is trying to convey to us this morning. Worship is what happens when we allow ourselves to enter into the unusual. You ever heard of burning bushes? Bushes that don't burn up? Have you ever heard of wet and dry fleece where the fleece is wet and the ground around it is dry and then that's the way we, well, that's the way it's supposed to be, Gideon says, so he reverses it. And, uh, Then the next night he says, no, I want the fleece to be dry and everything around it to be wet. And sure enough, that's what happened. You remember that story. Axe heads that float, axe heads, steel, iron that actually comes up and floats on top of the water. Bellies of big fish taking human beings on a trip. Water around worship altars that burns like gasoline. Coins in fishes' mouths. Dead coming to life. You cannot take the Bible seriously as the sacred word of God unless you are willing to come in contact with unusual moments. Common men and women find seemingly common events transformed by the presence of God. Thank you. We'll give it a shot here. Appreciate that. Ah, yes common people like you and I becoming transformed by bumping into uncommon things that God is doing around us. What is expected becomes the atypical. Bushes are supposed to burn up. Fish are supposed to eat what they swallow. They're not supposed to swim around with money in their mouths. The dead are supposed to remain dead. Common people, common days, uncommon events. Now take a look at another list from the Bible as well. You might remember these stories as well. An angel at Eden's gate, you know, when Adam and Eve were forced out of the garden, it says the angel with a flaming sword came to keep the way to the tree of life. That was their first church. And the angel with the flaming sword was there not to keep people out of the garden. He was there to protect the way of worship so that they could see the tree of life and remember that God had promised them life again. That's why Cain and Abel could know instantly whether their sacrifices were accepted or not. The angel simply touched the flaming sword down on their sacrifices and and it was burned up as a holy sacrifice to God. But Cain didn't get the message, did he? Or remember the story of the ladder from heaven. Jacob runs away after stealing his brother's birthright. It's the first night out. He falls asleep, puts his head on a a rock, 
and he dreams about this ladder where angels are ascending and descending from heaven. He's in the very presence of God, and when he wakes up, he realizes that he's been in the in, in the in the very presence of God himself. He makes a covenant. God says to him, "Listen, I will bless you. You will be my son." But he forgot that for 80 years of his life. A sundial that turns back 10 degrees. Physically impossible. Hezekiah is saved miraculously. The sign of that was the sundial moving back. And yet as soon as he was healed, what happens? The story is no longer about what God just did. Everybody said, what happened here? The story becomes, hey, I'm awesome. God really loves me. Uh, he just healed me, and he became the story rather than God. The stoning of a Christian who testified that he saw heaven open up and Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, and, and Saul is there holding everybody's coats, but he didn't get it. He didn't enter into the unusual. He didn't enter into the mystery these are all opportunities that you and I have, common people, common days, uncommon happenings, and they totally neglected them. My all-time favorite story was when Solomon became king. You talk about entering into the unusual here. When Solomon became king, the finances of Israel was pretty well shot. David had spent most of his kingship either hiding from the former king or establishing the strong boundaries of Israel. He was militarily mighty but financially impoverished. As we know today, wars cost a lot of money, don't they? So by the time that Solomon became king, he calls up the treasurer of the empire and he says, okay, how much money do we have, by the way? And the treasurer says, well, basically we have about enough money to buy a thousand bulls. Solomon says, great. On my coronation, I want us to take every dime that we have and I want us to worship God with that money. Let's buy a thousand bulls and let's sacrifice it to God. Now you talk about one wacky, far out, unusual idea. That's, that's what it would be like saying every dime that we have at Vineyard, we're just going to pour into a, into a hot dog roast for everybody who comes at St. Patrick's Day. Because we're going to do it as an act of worship. And all of you would say, come on, we need better leadership than that. And Jackie would say over my didn't know she would not. He spent that empire down to zero to worship God at the beginning of his, of his uh, kingship. To begin his reign with such lavish spending was unthinkable. In fact, the word rippled all through the then-known world. Look what they're doing over in Israel. Solomon is over there, and he just spent them into oblivion so he can worship their God. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says anything more than one cow a day. or one, Actually, it's one cow for a festival. It was sheep every day, but it was one cow maybe three or four times a year. And he starts off with a thousand of them. And it shocked them. It shocked God. I don't think God was ready for it either. That night he comes to Solomon and he says, Solomon, what do you want? First Kings 3, 5, ask for anything you want and I'm going to give it to you. 
Now, right here, of course, we always measure our character by what we would get if you won the lottery. You know, it's an easy way to figure out where your character really is. What would you do if you won the lottery? Well, here's Solomon just won the lottery. And he says to God, he says, really what I want to do is I want to be a wise king. Can you give me wisdom? God, overwhelmed by his humility and by his heart, his heart of worship, his heart of awareness that God was God and he was not, gave him everything else that he asked for as well. The supernatural was just like that then, and he's just like that now. Now, I'm not doing a sermon on stewardship here this morning, but you apply this to your own life and see if you can outgive God. See where your heart is when you give your tithes and your offerings. Are you willing to deplete your stuff for him and watch him fill it back up again? It takes a lot of guts to do that. But notice what happened when he did this. 1 Kings 10, 23 to 28. I'm just going to read the verse because it's an amazing story here. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom of God. They didn't come to see Solomon, but because of his act of worship and because that word went out, they came to hear about his God. And, and, what, and to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought gifts, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. It's just like going out your front yard, paving your driveway with silver. Cedar as plentiful as fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kuwait. The royal merchants purchased them from Kuwait. That's the top of the line, horses from Kuwait. Thirteen years after nearly depleting his kingdom's resources, they now come to dedicate the new temple. He had a thousand bull sacrifice for his coronation, okay? Guess how many he had 13 years later. For the dedication of the temple, he killed 22,000 bulls. 120,000 sheep and goats. God transformed that entire thing because he had given himself over to the unusual. He had entered into this mystical place of God's heart. Spirituality is planting your future deeply by entering the unusual in order to see God provide the supernatural. I got really wordy on this. Sorry, speech teacher. I didn't realize I was up in front of one of these every time I get up here. So I'm going to shorten this one a little bit. Putting it this way, spirituality is simply your willingness to enter into the unusual. And worship is how you feel when you get there. Does that make sense? Spirituality is just planting yourself into the unusual, saying, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enter into that. And worship is how you feel when you get there. 
We just finished a series on Nehemiah this summer about how to build walls and how to build churches and how to build each other up in the Lord and all that. And the culmination of all of that was that they worshipped. This grand climax of the book as they all came together and worshipped. Nehemiah was the first worshiper. His heart was overjoyed with all he had seen God do and he led his people into this same experience. You and I, however, find ourselves immersed in a scientific world where only things that are touchable and tasteable and repeatable and measured and, 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 and put under microscopes and, and, and the DNA is examined and all of that. That's the only reality that we're told is real. Those of you that are starting your school are going to be immersed in the scientific method as you already, you wouldn't have gotten into S&T if you hadn't already figured that one out. Those of you in high school, that's how you were taught. The only thing that is real is what you can taste, see, touch, and repeat in a scientific experiment. But if you and I call ourselves Christians, we are going to have to come to grips with the fact that there is a reality that you can't do that with. Either that or we just discount it all and throw it away. It's the only choice. But if we're Christian, we have to cross that Rubicon of, is this real or unreal? Am I going to enter into the unusual or am I going to stick with the tried and true? But if you and I call ourselves Christians, we have to, believe, we have to say that we believe stuff that no one else does. Things like mystery. God, heaven, resurrection, grace, peace, faith, love. I read a book this summer called uh, Sapiens, and it's a history of, of the world from the standpoint of the formation of sa- Homo sapien tribes and all that. And in there, it begins to talk about how is it that sapiens develop this ability to love one another, because love is not survival of the fittest. When you willingly sacrifice yourself for, for whatever, and, and, and science, the best that science can come up with is simply they figured out that it, they were better with 20 people or less in a group than they were individually. So it became self-interest that they actually bond with each other. Christianity has a much better story than that. And it's not rooted in self-interest, it's rooted in the fact that there's a creator God who put a spark in us that is inexplicable, cannot explain it, beyond understanding. And you can't put it under a test tube and measure it. Remember the story of Elisha that time, they're surrounded by the Moabites or the Amorites or some enemy out there. And they're about to be devoured, and Gehazi, his servant, is just scared out of his mind. What are we going to do? And Elisha turns to him and says, come on, those that are with us are a lot more than those that are against us. There's nothing to worry about. You'll see tomorrow that we've already won the battle. Elisha says, what in the world are you talking about? So Elisha prayed to God and said, God, will you just open his eyes for a minute so Gehazi's spiritual eyes were opened and he saw all of the angels of God surrounding all these Amorites or Moabites or whoever that was ready to attack him. 
Remember Naaman, the, the head general of the Syrian army, comes over and finds Elisha one day, and, and he says, I've got leprosy, and, and what can you do for me? And, and he brought all this money and all of this trappings of his wealth over to give to whoever could cure him. And, and Elisha doesn't even bother to come out and see him. He sends his servant out and says, just go dip in the River Jordan seven times and, and, and you'll be cured. And Naaman couldn't handle that because that was too unusual. The Bible says he turned away in a rage and raced back towards Damascus. But somehow his servant, smarter than he was, got him to the River Jordan and he dipped down seven times. And the Bible says that his skin became like baby flesh. It wasn't just middle-aged flesh. It became like a skin of a baby. You remember the story of the boys' lunch who fed 5,000 men plus their wives and kids, probably 15,000, 20,000 people that day out of five little biscuits and two fish. You're not going to find that in any scientific manual on how to do that. Or Thomas, after the resurrection, when Jesus said, just touch my scars, go ahead, feel them, make sure that you know that I am real. Paul said it best when he said in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, he says, but a natural man does not accept the things of God, accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Or he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. you got to finally just let it go and say, you know what? I'm just a fool running around here believing in the unusual. We're so prone to understand what we think we see that we can't enter into the unseen stuff. Bev and I learned this early on in our lives when, when I was in seminary and I was coming home every day and I think I've told this story already but there's enough new that I think it, it works well here. And I was coming home excited every day about, wow, things I'd learned in Bible class this and Bible class that and, and she was a young mother and she was a nurse and she'd go off and work for her eight-hour shift and come back and, and be a young mother and she didn't have time to study her Bible and journal like she liked to do and had been doing before she became a young mother and, and a nurse. And she uh, and I had to go to a, a weekend retreat one time and we all got separated and in her group. She finally just broke down and she said, I just feel so jealous of my husband. I'm angry for him and I feel so away from God because I don't have time to be with him anymore. And this old retired professor, professor of spiritual disciplines at the seminary, he just came over and he knelt down in front of Bev and he took her hands in his hands and he says, little mother, don't you know that every time that you bathe your baby, you're bathing Jesus himself? Little mother, don't you know that every time that you feed your little baby, you are feeding Jesus? Every time you put clothes on your baby, you are clothing Jesus? You are worshiping by the very act of being who you are because you have entered into the unseen. You have seen Jesus and all of that. Mother Teresa saw Jesus in the dying of the streets of Calcutta. She didn't do it out of a mandate. She did it because she couldn't stand to think that Jesus was dying alone on the streets. 
She saw Jesus in every face. Worship is not something that we can understand. It is something that we experience. It's not singing a few songs and listening to a sermon walking out the door, but rather it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of living in the unusual. It was out of Greek philosophy that we separated this spiritual and physical realm. That came out of Platonic philosophy, and it is not God's philosophy. We are all spiritual, and we're all physical, and we're all wrapped together. It is all one. We don't separate out things. You worship when you're taking a test for physics. You're worshiping when you get that F. Because you say, obviously, God's got to kick in here somewhere. Right? So the summary this morning is answering this simple question. How do we enter into the unseen? You ready? Here we go, real quick. Three. Number one, expect the uncommon. You wake up every day expecting to bump into the uncommon. It's going to be there. It's there every day. Nothing changes. God is always busy trying to communicate with you. But we have the choice, just like Cain and Abel, do we see this or not? Do we see, like Saul, just holding, is my only job to hold um, coats, or is my job to see this Christ high and lifted up inside somewhere? Every day is, is a further revelation of who God is for you. We live in expect, expectancy that he is going to somehow reveal himself sometime, someplace, some way if not constantly, in all of our daily activities. That doesn't mean you stop, you fold your hands, you close your eyes and say, okay, God, I'm going to enter into the unseen now. No, it's when you're grabbing your cup of coffee to wake up in the morning. It's when you're singing in the shower. It's when you're driving to work or to school or whatever. Number two, identify God in the mundane. God rarely shows up with the handwriting on the wall. If God shows up handwriting on the wall for you, or if you hear his voice, which rarely did anybody in scripture ever hear the voice. They heard it here, but they didn't hear it here. But every once in a while they heard it here. It was always the worst thing they ever did because after that it was like, oh, I mean, I got to leave Midian and go back to Egypt. They're going to kill me down there. Or the handwriting on the wall simply means you've been missing all the signals. God almost always identifies himself in the mundane, the burning bush. If you've ever been around the desert, you know those bushes burn all the time. I lived in San Diego for five years. All the time there was instant combustion fires out in the desert when this heat would, would just explode some of these um, burnable plants out there. He had seen burning bushes many times before. But he saw Jesus in this one because he was looking, because he saw that it was unusual, that it wasn't burning up. Most often he reveals himself in a way that if we chose not to see it, not to believe it, not to act on it, we can glibly go off and expect him to show us something bigger so that we really get his message. But he can show, show himself up in that frat boy that you can't stand. 
or that professor that seems to find the only power in his or her life is in that classroom and you hate to just, you get a knot in your stomach every time you go in. But if you go in expecting the unusual, you might find God there waiting for you in that context. Do you see what I mean? Nicodemus came to see Jesus because he saw something unusual and he wanted to understand it. Not because there was a handwriting on the wall, go see Jesus. And lastly, you act upon what you see. Our connection with God is always active, always. Even when we passively, like this morning, sitting here listening to spiritual things being, being taught here. Jacob, when he was um, written about in the hall of fame, so to speak, Hebrews 11, the faith chapter as we call it, Jacob was 80 years old when he went to the river Jabbok. He had wasted 80 years of ignoring God's plan for his life. Everything up to that point was a bargain with God. God, I will be faithful to you provided you bless me. And by the time Jacob got to the river Jabbok, he was filthy rich. He had stolen his, his, uh, from his uncle. He had turned that, that, that theft into uh, high-end uh, money for himself, his flocks, his herds. He had his own army. He had his whole retinue of slaves and servants. He had four wives. He had who knows how many kids. He was there a successful con man. His name meant con, by the way. Jacob meant simply in English, sneaky snake. He came to the river Jabbok at 80 years old, and he confronts, he is confronted with God. The unusual, I mean, it was an unusual moment, but it's felt so normal. He knew he was going to be attacked. He went out expecting to fight one of his brother's soldiers. Pretty heady stuff for an 80-year-old, by the way. But as they wrestled through the night, as the light was dawning that morning, he realized that he'd been wrestling with God. And then his fight became desperation, and he held on to the arm of God, and he said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me, unless you transform me, unless you do something unusual in my life. And from that moment on, he became the overcomer. His name meant the victorious one, Israel. But in Hebrews 11, in trying to find what was decent to write in this faith chapter about the, the, the founders of this Judaistic faith called uh, uh, Jews, the Jewish uh, faith, the only thing they could find about Jacob that was worth mentioning was how he died. And in Hebrews 11, it simply says, he leaned on his staff, the staff that had been the symbol of his relationship with God, the staff was always with him. That was his spiritual symbol. Leaning on his staff, he blessed his grandsons and his sons, and dying, he worshiped. The only and the best thing that could be said about Jacob was that when he died, he was looking even more eagerly to the unusual, to the mystery, to that which cannot be scientifically proven. 
Worship is giving worth to God. It is feeling what it feels like when we enter into the unusual. It is loving one another. How do you feel when you love one another? You feel connected to your creator, do you not? Caring for one another. Being non-judgmental. Let people be who they are and let God be who God is and realize that God loves them more than you love them. So don't you think that maybe he's the one that can straighten them out better than you? Coming together to be reminded of these unusual stories. And that's really what this church should be and is, I do believe. It just simply reminds you that what you can't see is more real than what you can see. That the unusual is very unusual around here and that God is God and that you are not honoring one another and creating peace and safety as much as possible his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven after all it's Jesus who says to us if you've done it to the least of these you've done it to me so we begin to look for the unusual and we enjoy an amazing and uncommon life In other words, we worship. Let's pray.